I'm really enjoying exploring my relationship with grief and that the fact that I think I've gone from seeing it as the total enemy and trying to fight it. Instead, it's almost like I'm going like, come on in. (laughs) You're going to be with me for, for life. I don't think grief's going anywhere for me anytime soon. And I'm now okay with that. And so I'm a bit like if I can treat it more so like a friend then I seem to be faring better for it. And it's giving me a lot more energy and space to, to sit in emotions, to feel what I'm feeling and, um, and be okay with that. Life gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons, into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Joe Betts is a widow. But she doesn't dress in black, she isn't angry at the world, and she doesn't collect cats. Instead, she's a mum to her seven-year-old daughter, Heidi. She's a marriage celebrant and perhaps one of the most optimistic, loving and wholehearted people I've had the pleasure of meeting. Jo lost her husband, Craig, suddenly to an asthma attack in the early hours of the night, almost three years ago to the day this podcast episode is released. Her entire world upended shaken until almost unrecognisable, in the space of a few hours. It's unthinkable, and the way Jo recounts how the course of her life changed forever in this interview made it difficult for me to take a breath at times, because it was so raw, vulnerable and honest. In the preceding years, Jo's relationship with grief has changed and transformed. At times, she's lamented it, ignored it, buried it deep, laughed along with it, cried through it, She ticked through the five stages of grieving as if it was a to-do list and once complete, she'd be free from its clutches forever. But eventually, Jo realised grief wasn't going anywhere, probably for the rest of her life. So she decided to change tactic and welcome it in, get to know it and accept it as part of her soul. And so grief, the guided journal, was born. It's the kind of book Jo would have loved when she was first navigating the grips of grieving the love of her life she assumed she'd grow old with. It was released a month ago and already it's changing other people's lives in a way Jo never could have predicted. I hope you enjoy this beautifully candid conversation with the delightful Jo. Jo, thank you so much for being here on the Lemonade Podcast. How are you? How are you in, actually, how are you in stage three? Sorry, it's not that chirpy. Well, I, I feel a little bit chirpy today because I'm talking to you, but I, you know, um, I think coronavirus has certainly hit all of us quite hard. And so I think like the rest of Victoria and Australia, you're just kind of on that roller coaster of emotions and just keeping your fingers crossed and, and hoping for the best. But look, I certainly feel like I'm faring a little bit better this um, period of restrictions than last time, which is a nice feeling, but yeah, just rolling with it. That's really interesting because most people I've spoken to, and I know with me, it's the other way around. I feel like I did better the first time, but this time around, maybe because it's so much more intense here in, like in Melbourne being stage four and just very scary. Um, yeah, it was that way around. Why do you think it hit you harder the first time compared to this time? Uh, well, I think, you know, we'll probably explore this a little bit um, later. Look, I'm obviously not new. I'm uh, sorry. I, yeah, grief plays a fairly large role in my life. And, um, you know, I think I, because I'm on this constant grief journey that the first time, yeah, I don't know, it, it took me to a pretty dark sort of place as it reminded me of a lot of feelings of, you know, what I'd been through over the last few years. And it was because we hadn't experienced um, coronavirus before. Whereas I think now, because I'm probably better equipped in my skills and strategies to cope, you know, I'm a little bit like I've done the homeschooling before. I um, have experienced these restrictions. Hopefully I'm better set up in saying that. I say that now, maybe ask me tomorrow in a week's time. I could be (laughs) in a heap on the bathroom floor. Who knows? 
It's so changeable. That's the whole thing. Like, yeah, you can ask me today and I've had, I've had a really nice morning. Yeah, I'm fine. No big deal. And then, yeah, come tomorrow. Exactly the same. Someone could ask me, how are you doing with it all? And I'm like, it's just so hard. It's just so unfair. Why me? <laughs> you get so caught up in the drama and the story of it all. But um, yeah, it is so changeable and just one day at a time. But as you said, having that toolkit is really vital and we will get to that definitely. But Joe, with all my interviews, I start them in the same way. And that's just wanting to know what your childhood was like. What was it like growing up for you? Um, so my childhood was really good. I grew up in Bannockburn, which is about 20 minutes away from Geelong um, in a small country town. Um, I'm the middle child. So I um I don't think they, my brother and sister might say the opposite. I don't think I necessarily have middle child syndrome <laughs> at all, but look, we had a really, I guess, lovely childhood. You know, we spent most of our days kind of running around in paddocks and spending time with friends. And, um, you know, I was pretty, I guess, I was, I don't know, I was a bit of an all-rounder really, if I look at it, you know, I was doing sports like netball and tennis and um, swimming and all those kind of things, but I was also a pretty avid reader when I was younger. And so my brother and sister would give me a really hard time about that and calling me a bookworm and a bit of a nerd and things like that too. But, you know, I really relished learning. So I absolutely loved primary school and I went into Geelong for my high schooling years and went to the all girls Catholic school and I had a great experience there. And, you know, I formed some really good friendships across that time and most of them are still some of my closest friends today, which has been really important to me. And and what's been interesting is, you know, I've spent time living in Melbourne and overseas and things too, but funnily enough, every time, you know, I come back home and I'm based in Geelong now, um, those primary and high school friends are actually still like my nearest and dearest. But yeah, I had a look, I had a really lovely childhood, which, um, you know, you, I'm very grateful for. Mm-hmm. And you're a marriage celebrant, right? Is that correct? I am actually. So um, after, well, whilst I was, you know, going through the process of getting married myself, I, you know, came up with the idea that I was like, maybe I could be a marriage celebrant. So I guess I'd always loved interacting with people and writing and public speaking and things too. So it just kind of seemed like a natural next step. You know, it, um, it's funny because I kind of thought that it might be one of those little side jobs that I do and maybe do 10 weddings a year or so, but it quickly kicked off. And I think, you know, at some stages, I've been doing it for almost 10 years wow. now. Um, yes, I've been at it for a while, a bit of an old hat in that one, in that sense. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I was doing up to 50 or 60 weddings a season and, you know, I've probably done 500 wedding ceremonies all up. So yeah, so it's definitely kept me busy and allowed me, I guess, to step back from doing sort of nine to five kind of work and being flexible. And I think especially... Um, you know, being a mother, it was a really good job initially too, because, you know, I was able to be at home with my daughter, Heidi, and still work and pursue things in my career as well. 500 weddings. You surely must have a few bridezilla stories in there. <laughs> Whether you want to tell me about them or not is a different thing. <laughs> it's, um, what will I say? It's a very interesting career. I, I will say the majority of my clients are incredible and amazing. And I'd say that that happens 95% of the time. And the other 5% is what keeps it really interesting. <laughs> That is the most beautifully diplomatic answer I've heard. Yeah. You answered that very well. You should go into politics. <laughs> Wedding politics. So I don't know. Look, you see it all. Um, you meet some really interesting characters, some really great characters, and it's certainly um, a fascinating industry to be in. Yeah, absolutely. And you said you got into it when you were planning your own wedding and that was to your husband, yeah. Craig. Can you tell me about how you met him? Yes. So I actually um, met Craig on a nightclub um, dance floor, essentially. And I don't even think I was actually dancing. I was just sitting to the side on a bar stool, probably having a bit of a breather. And he came across and approached me and came and said hello. And he sort of said it in hindsight, you know, he thought that I was smiling at him, but he soon realized he was like, after we'd started dating, he realized that, um, I'd smile at anyone after a glass of champagne. So <laughs> I don't think he was feeling quite as lucky as he thought he was that evening. So we 
you know, I think um, met that evening, shared a bit of a, a kiss and um, party passion. Yeah, then went, floor. <laughs> yeah, party passion. And then went our separate ways, but we had exchanged phone numbers. And I just remember the next day being like, oh, God, like we were very different, Craig and I. <laughs> I'm not sure I really want to see this guy again. And he was, I was living in Geelong. He was living in Melbourne. Anyway, he just, yeah, kind of kept in touch with me and pursued me a little bit. And I eventually relented and went and had dinner with him in Melbourne. And really the rest you can say is history on that one. We dated for a few months. He actually had planned around the world trip for, you know, well, I guess an indefinite trip with a mate to go um, all through the US, the UK, Fiji, etc. So I was pretty heartbroken when he left after a few months of dating but he eventually called me and said, um, you know, I'm thinking about coming home. And I was, I sort of thought that that might be it for us, that if he came home, that would be it. So I don't know. I said, what do you think about me joining you? But I had no money to my name whatsoever. And he was like, well, why don't you save some money? But in the meantime, I'll pay for your ticket to come across and join me in London. And then, yeah, sure enough, six months later, I went and joined him there. And yeah, we, we lived together in London for about three years or so. Oh, and wow. um, yeah, and traveled and then yeah, eventually came back home and settled in Melbourne for a period of time and got engaged and the wedding and yeah, then a baby. And what did you love about him? Do you know what? I think with Craig, what I loved so much about him was that he I don't know, he was such a, like, he looked like a tough kind of character, but he was such a softie. He had this real respect for women, um, particularly me in our relationship and, you know, other people's behaviour towards me or other women. Like, I really admired that about him was that, um, yeah, I don't know, he was just, he was just really loving of me, all his friends, and he wasn't afraid to tell you. And almost to the point of annoyance where he'd always be like, we'd be out with friends and we'd be having a few drinks and he'd be like, I just love Joe so much. Isn't she amazing? Like he would just kind of shout it from the rooftops, whatever he was kind of feeling. And I don't know, I think he lived life in a really large sort of way. He was always up for an adventure and travel and all those kind of things. And you know, he took me along for the ride for a lot of it. Yeah. And then you welcomed your beautiful daughter, Heidi. What was that few first few years of her life like as a little family? Yeah, it was, um, it was a really, I don't know, beautiful few years, but also, you know, like any mum, it's, it's a challenging time. And, and Heidi was actually a really amazing baby. She was a good sleeper, you know, such a giggler and a smiler and absolute delight. But I think Craig and I found it quite challenging because we'd been in this relationship where it was just the two of us and all of a sudden there was a third party. Um, and it was like, oh God, so we actually love this child almost more than we, we love each other. And I think, you know, our relationship kind of shifted and, you know, ebbed and flowed like most people do. I think we was as strong as kind of ever, but I think we had a challenge kind of adjusting initially as a family, but, you know, like we had some beautiful times together, did a few trips away and um, Craig was just besotted with Heidi from the moment she was born and he would spoil her rotten because, and because I worked like a lot of weekends through Mm. the wedding um, celebrate work, he would just, I don't know, I'd come home and he'd have bought her toys and bloody trampoline rolled up in our backyard one weekend for no other reason than he just loved spoiling her and being with her. And he was, he was a really devoted dad. And what, you know, another thing I really loved about him was he allowed me to, I guess, have a bit of freedom in my life by, by, by doing those little things, you know, as in not ever seeing Heidi as a burden. Mm. So on a Saturday, if I had to go out to work, like I never had to pack a meal or worry about what she was going to wear. He just had it sorted. He was a really effortless kind of father. And in a way I thought more effortless than I perhaps Mm. was. I think it took a bit more adjusting for me, but yeah, he was certainly a really um, beautiful and invested father. And then on one very unassuming what seemed like a very normal day in September 2017, I believe, everything yeah. changed. Your whole entire world upended. Can you yeah. describe to us what happened? Yeah, so essentially, um, you know, on the 6th of September, I guess in 2017, so almost, yeah, three years ago, 
I went to work, I, you know, I've always sort of freelanced or, um, you know, go to co-working space to work. I'd been there for the day and yeah, just it was such an ordinary day. And I came home from work that evening and Craig and I had dinner together and, you know, we, I don't know, we were talking about Heidi and the funny thing was that we had been trying to, you know, how toddlers love sleeping in your bed. Um, so Heidi had been making her way into our bed for, you know, probably a good year or two years or so. And I think we decided we were going to get a bit harder and try and shift her out. So all week we'd been saying to her, you can have a dollar for every, every night that you sleep in your bed. And I think we're at Wednesday night, she still hadn't made any money. And so we'd had dinner and Heidi, I just recall saying to me, can I just sleep one more night with daddy? And I kind of said, yeah, do you know what? can't be bothered being hard on this Mm. one tonight. So yeah, go for it. So we put her to bed in our bed. And interestingly, I actually made a a call, which was a bit out of the blue where I said to Craig, I'd I'd had a flu really recently and been quite sick and said to him, I'm just so exhausted at the moment. So I think we'll do a bit of a bed swap as in I'll sleep in Heidi's room and um, you go to sleep with Heidi. And he was like, yeah, yeah, no problems. Basically yelled out, I love you. And off to bed, I went. And fell into a pretty deep sleep that night. And then, yeah, around 2.30 in the morning, I just, you know, will never forget it. But essentially Craig just like bashed through Heidi's bedroom door and I just immediately sort of sat up in total shock and just going, oh my God, what's happened? And he just sort of started to say to me, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. So Craig had, um, you know, he'd always had asthma in the time that we had been together. But, you know, in that sort of 12 or so years, like I'd never seen him have any kind of attack, you know. Um, I mean, I immediately kind of thought that, you know, this must be this asthma. So he kind of made his way back down to our bedroom. And when I got into our bathroom, you know, I'm sort of looking at him as he, you know, is going redder and redder. And I'm thinking I've got to get on the phone to an ambulance like right away. So I quickly rang triple O and um, yeah, ran out to our front door to open that because I assumed that obviously an ambulance would be on its way at some point Um, and then headed back into the bathroom to to help him. But, you know, I guess as, as an aside to that sort of story, I think as I've run back into the bathroom, I've looked at our bed and I couldn't see where Heidi was. But at that point, you're going, well, there's someone not breathing here and I've got to attend to them. So I guess kind of what resulted over those next sort of 20 to 25 minutes before, you know, help eventually arrived was, you know, Craig basically collapsed, you know, right in front of me over our toilet of all things. And, you know, the operator sort of saying to me, like, you're going to have to get him onto the ground. And I'm quite a small frame and Craig is quite a big guy. And I don't know, there's just so much in that moment that just felt like whatever could go wrong was going wrong. So it was the hard task of getting him, you know, onto the ground, then, you know, having to do compressions with him and, you know, um, eventually the operator sort of saying to me, you're going to have to, you know, do four breaths into his mouth. And I hadn't realised that his head had somehow got lodged underneath our vanity, which had a space on once again up and moving him around again. And, yeah, it was... (sighs) I don't know, like it just felt like it was absolute chaos in that time. Like I, it's, there's a really, I think, dark side of me that almost wants to listen back to that triple O call because just to kind of know exactly what played out then, because in my mind it seemed so frantic, so chaotic as I'm attempting to resuscitate him, nothing seemed to be working and, you know, screaming for help and kind of feeling like help was not coming or felt, you know, so far away. And I guess in the back of my mind too, I'm feeling like, where's my daughter? I don't know where she is. And I was really worried that she had either wandered out to the street on her own or whether she was cowering somewhere in our lounge room and then being terrified that she was going to walk in on what was playing out in the bathroom um, with Craig and I, and I just, you know, when you're just kind of going, what, what choice do you make at that point? Is it protecting your child from seeing something that you would never want them to be exposed to, or, you know, trying to save your husband's life. So it was, you know, it was a very desperate 
time for me. Um, yeah, eventually help did come in the form of, you know, some paramedics who, yeah, they worked on Craig for, you know, almost an hour. And, you know, in that time, thankfully, I was able to find Heidi, you know, was actually still tucked up in our bed. I think when Craig had got out of the bed, the covers had fallen over her. So, you know, paramedics are working. I'm trying to shift my child from one room to another and hoping that she doesn't wake up and, um, yeah, thankfully she didn't. And I think I'll always be really, yeah, grateful that she slept through, slept through that. But yeah, I think upon sort of having her settled, just coming out and thinking far out, like this is really, really, really bad. Um, you know, the paramedics sort of said to me to, to keep away in that time. And so I was just kind of sat at my kitchen table, just, you know, you're all alone. You don't know what to, yeah, you don't know what to think in that time. And I think my brain was firing through like a lot of things. And there's part of you going, oh God, this is really bad. I've probably, I maybe lost him in this. I think there's another side of you going, I know he hasn't been breathing for 20 to 25 minutes. So even if they can get him back, what's, what does that mean for us? And interestingly, there was another side of it that my brain was actually saying, well, it is what it is. You're just going to have to do it. Whatever this result is, you're just going to have to do it. So kindly the paramedics, you know, did come out and said to me, say to me, you're going to have to call someone and call someone that lives close by. So, I sort of said to them, I've actually lost my phone somewhere through it. And they're like, we'll have a look through the bedroom. They came out and I was able to get onto my mum who didn't live too far away. And yeah, she came to be with me, my dad following not too far behind. And yeah, after an hour, they kind of came out to me and said, we've tried everything that we can do. And um, we never got anything from the moment that we arrived. And yeah, that's all we can do. He's died. So it's... <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, like it's the most surreal experience you'll ever go through. And I think in that moment, you just feel like I just felt utter defeat and it's really hard to describe, like almost like my whole body just kind of didn't collapse. It was more, more so like a slump, just kind of going like, oh God, like I've tried everything I could and I just... I, you know, I'm such a problem solver in life and this was a problem that I just simply couldn't solve. And yeah, like, and then all of a sudden, you know, the paramedics are kind of like, well, right, so we're off. We're going to essentially tag team with the police. So the police have to come because it's an unexpected death because he was young. So then this, you know, she was a really beautiful police officer came and, you know, they're asking you questions and, um, she kind of said to me, you know, I'm, I'm aware that there's a child in this home. What time does she wake up? And so at this stage, I'm thinking it's probably about 4.30 in the morning. And I said, oh, Heidi should be awake anywhere between 6 and 6.30. And she kind of said to me, well, can we make a bit of a call as in if, with your permission, can we get Craig's body out of here before she wakes up? So... <sighs> I agreed and it just seemed like the right thing to do at that point. Um, so, yeah, I think once the police had sort of, you know, been there, they organised for undertakers to come in and they kind of said to me, right, you've got, you've got an hour um, or 45 minutes or so that you can spend with him. And you just, I don't know, you're just dealing with these insane things you just never thought imaginable, things like, you know, because he was still laid out in they'd moved him from our bathroom to our bedroom like do you want him put into your bed and going well yeah yeah I guess so like let's make him comfortable do you want the wedding ring or do you prefer that to stay with him and I'm like oh you know I think yeah okay I'll take the wedding ring and then all of a sudden you're kind of faced with having to spend time with you know a dead body that you know I, I it's so funny because I probably would have thought anyone ever had to said to me you would be in a room with a dead body, I would have said absolutely no way. I'm a bit of a scaredy cat with things like that. But there was absolutely no fear whatsoever, just this like wanting to, 
just wanting to be with him. And I guess that was my chance to kind of say to him how much I loved him. And there's a lot of me, I guess, saying to him that I'm sorry. And I, I recall like my mum and my sister had arrived by this time sort of saying to me, you've got nothing to be sorry about. You've tried everything that you can. And I was like, it's actually, it's not, not even that. I'm just, I'm so sorry that he's like missing out on like, you know, as I said, he was like larger than life and he's missing out on life, but more so he's missing out on our little girl. And I know he'd be so pissed off about that. <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, I just spent that next sort of hour with him and then yeah, away they took him and all of a sudden you're going, God, so between the hours of 2.30 and 5.30 a.m., my life as I have ever once knew it had just been completely, like, decimated. And oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, and you're just kind of going, oh, God, like, far out, where, where to from here because I don't, I don't know, can you come back from this? Like, can you honestly come back from it? And, um, yeah, look, I'm obviously still here, so that's a good sign. (laughs) But, you know, it's it's a really, yeah, it's a surreal, bizarre, crazy experience to have gone through. And, um, you know, I guess, yeah, there's kind of, you know, what next from there. But, yeah, I I don't know, like there's, there's... what yeah. do you remember from those first few days? What was, was it just like a blur of time? Yeah, it's a, it's a blur because a lot happens in that time. And I think, you know, people probably have images of you sitting at home in the fetal position. I think definitely I'd gone into shock immediately. So, you know, I think when you're in shock, you're either fight, flight or freeze. And I'd gone yep. into fight mode, like as in, well, stuff this, away we go. We've got funeral planning. We've got this to do. Like, I think that was my kind of coping mechanism. And so with that, you know, funeral parlors attend, you've got celebrant to organise. So I think that was a good focus. You know, I had my family there. There's friends. There's that, that, those first few days are blurry, but but busier than what you kind of expect, but, but you're in total shock. Like I just remember like a lot of, I know what my body is like. I know it very well now when it is in shock, I, I shake, I'm hot, I'm cold, um, nauseous. Like I'm, I think I would have probably secretly been vomiting, you know, across those first few days as you kind of just trying to get your head around what's happened, kind of a bit of exhaustion, but not, really knowing what to do. Um, a lot of people just trying to give me hot cups of tea and um, my dad was amazing. So he's from like Russian sort of German descent. So he knows that I love his Polish sausage and potato soup that he makes. So all of a sudden he's at home and bringing around, oh, it's going to make me cry, but, <laughs> um, you know, just soup that was made with a lot of care and love and just to kind of keep me warm through that time. So those first few days are very, you know, an even week, it's very blurry, but busy and you're running on adrenaline. I think it's more so after the funeral stops and <laughs> that's where the, the sort of almost harder. And life resumes, doesn't it? Yeah. And life yeah. feels like, yeah, everyone just goes back from what I've heard just to their life and yes. it just resumes and- as normal. And then all of a sudden, the world's still spinning for everybody. Yeah, you're kind of going like, so everyone's back off to work. And it, a part mm. of me didn't care. Part of me actually knew that I needed a bit of space from people and to, to start bringing it back in close as in, all right, this just needs to be my immediate family and some very close friends around me um, because, yeah, I'm about to sort of start doing the really hard yards. But you are, you're looking at the rest of the world going on around you and thinking, like how, how can you, like, did you know that this guy died? Like, did you know how amazing it was? And I love that poem that stop all the clocks because it really resonates with me as in like, I, I don't understand. Like why, how can the world go on? Like you, this person was my everything and I've lost him. So shouldn't the entire world be in mourning? 
over this. So, which seems ridiculous, but that's the way you're feeling. And then you're also going where to from here and how do I start to piece this back together? Um, Because I think death's really interesting in that sense, as in, especially when it comes to the death of a partner or a husband or a wife, you know, for someone, I guess, who who sees someone that dies semi-regularly, you know, it's, it's a huge and tragic loss. But when it's someone that, you know, you've built and created this life with and, you know, you lean on each other for emotional support and, um, and even financial support, you're just left in this state of going, oh, God, like there's not one aspect of my life that's not being impacted by this at all. Like every part of me, like everything I look at has kind of completely fallen to pieces. And, you know, then you're kind of there to clean up, you know, the mess essentially and, and yeah, start to build your life back up again. And how did you explain to your daughter Heidi what was going on? I think she was four at the time. Yeah, so Heidi had just turned four. So, yeah, I, I guess going back to we obviously got Craig's body out before we woke up. Be- yeah, before she woke up cup sorry and um in that she was actually due to go to kinder that day now the house was just not sorry out of control like as in people out of control but I think you know at this point my sister is there um my parents are there and we're just in total utter shock and thinking what do we even do so we came to an agreement that none of us were really in the state and I knew the news of Craig's death would have to come from me. And I just wasn't at a point, you know, and you've got to think this is half an hour after his body has exited the home um, that, you know, I just, I wasn't in a place that I think I could have explained that to her and done it any justice or in the way that I wanted it to. So my sister-in-law kindly came and collected her from the home quite early in the morning. Um, She hadn't, it was, I mean, weird because she would have woken up and we, the whole family sitting there and we're just like, hi, Heidi, <laughs> thinking, oh, God, just don't, uh, you know, she would have been used to thinking Craig gone off to work. So I think we'd sort of just, you know, was trying to sort of steer any questioning away from Craig. But then his phone rang, which we were just like, and she's like, daddy's phone's ringing. We're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, like just ignore that, just ignore that. So I think it was a workmate that didn't know what had happened was probably just trying to contact him. Um, so she went off for the day and that gave me enough time to, I guess, prepare for that, for breaking that news. And um, kindly enough, the celebrant who ended up officiating Craig's funeral dropped around some resources for me to read about, you know, how you break this news to a child. And I leaned on that quite heavily and um, I still think it was, the best advice I could have got. So when she got home from kinder, yeah, it was up to me to, <clears throat> to take her to another room and, um, yeah, sit down with her and just say to her, like, I've, you know, I've got some really, really sad and bad news and um, daddy's died when, you know, it's it's so sad and when, we're not going to see him again and, you know, you just kind of go like, I could just see that in that moment, her little heart broke and she just, you know, immediately, I don't know, like almost that same feeling. It's interesting. I, I probably never thought of this in that way, but where I was saying where I had that moment of slumping shoulders and defeat, it was almost the exact same from her. She just kind of leaned into me and just started to cry a little bit. And, you know, we hugged and, um, she didn't really say too much at that time. And like, I think she understood what I was saying completely. I've, I've often had a lot of questions. Do you think she really understood? <laughs> she bloody understood. Um, but, you know, I think the brilliant thing with children is, you know, kind of we were easily able to distract her from that and, you know, just kind of, I guess, shield her a little bit too, as in we delivered the news with honesty I yeah. say we, me. <laughs> um, far out, Craig. I'm just like, oh, God. So, yeah, look, I don't know. I think that will go down as oh, probably the worst part of it. I Having to deliver that news to a child is just something you should never have to do. But, you know, you, you do what you have to do. And, um, 
yeah, it's that was just part of it, unfortunately. And can you tell me a little bit about grief? What does it mean for you and how has it changed and altered and what different forms has it taken over the last few years? Yeah, so I would definitely say um, grief is a wild ride. Um, if you if you really look at it, look, it's it has drastically changed for me, actually. So I think, as I mentioned before, you know, I went into this like whole fight mode after Craig had died. And I think part of that, I thought that I had to, well, I don't know. I think I thought I'd gone into some kind of battle and it was a bit like, I can only liken the experience almost to being like, I thought I'd been dropped into some movie scene. And I thought if I just kind of do my best and play the right role, <laughs> perhaps they'll give me a medal at the end of the day and say, you've done well, you, you've completed grief. So I think initially I went into this whole, oh God, grief's going to hit me. So I'm going to research everything that I can do and I'm going to go straight to the psychologist. So I'm going to try every therapy under the sun and I just hope that I can be healed. Like, so that's, I kept saying, I just want to be healed <laughs> from it. And if you could do that as quickly as possible, that'd be great. Like, I think I would be exactly like. exactly like, that is exactly <laughs> me to a T that's, yes, in my, I, my know, time. Within, yeah, I did oh, exactly that. <laughs> and I was like, what's the timeline <laughs> that I can expect that I'm going to then feel like this? Oh, and I would have been on Google like every hour of the day going, what are the stages? Have I, and I remember sitting with my sister and saying, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think I'm in denial right now, but the great thing is I'll be moving into bargaining soon. And that just means another stage. Tick, (laughs) tick. Yeah. Yeah. Go me. So I, you know, I, I worked really hard that first year on myself, but I think I was also determined to be very positive about it too, as in, you know what, I am not going to let this get me down. And God, that is exhausting. And pretty much after you won, when no one gave me an Oscar or a medal for (laughs) for my grieving, um, I just fell in a heap because I think essentially I wasn't, there were some really important emotions in grief that I just wasn't paying attention to. And I was squashing right back down and, um, yeah, I, I, I was exhausted and fatigued and essentially I was doing some particular kind of trauma-based therapy um, almost uh, about sort of 15, 16 months after Craig had died and that rocked me, like, I, like absolutely broke me and that was really taking me back to that place of what had happened to me and, um, and I... I wasn't coping. I would have spent a few months of just, well, I say not coping, but when I look back and reflect on it, I'm like, well, they're the emotions that I've been stifling for so long came to surface. So all of a sudden I was so angry. Like I was so angry and I always find anger is quite an uncomfortable emotion for me because I'm a naturally kind of positive person anyway, but God, like if you had to see me at that time, like you're lucky I probably didn't punch you in the face. (laughs) Like I just, I was angry at Craig. I was angry at other families. I was angry at anyone that sort of came to my path because I think I was just going like, I'm, how has this happened to me? And this is, this feels like it's ruining my life and and I don't want it to. And, you know, it was, it was an interesting kind of phase to go through and, so I think I, but same thing, a little bit naive as in going, well, I guess what I've done anger so I can tick that off the list. <laughs> and I, you know, I think I soon started to realize that, you know, grief is far from linear and as quickly as you can move through stages and, you know, you might think that you're at a place of acceptance, something can trigger you in an instant or, you know, a series of events or something, and you can be dragged back kicking and screaming to stage one of being in denial. So I think I've, I've gone from trying to fight against my grief to really trying to embrace it. And funnily enough, the more I embrace it, the more I'm probably liking myself and liking these emotions that come out in me and that if I just pay attention to whatever emotion I'm feeling at that time, whether that is sadness or anger or loneliness, whatever it is, just sitting with it, feeling with it, I tend to move through it a little bit better. Um, 
I'm starting to learn what to expect a little bit more for myself. I'm more in tune with my body. So what I was saying, I know when I go back into that shock or feel that anxiousness that I'm like, right. And I mean, I don't always get this right, um, but I, I know how to attend to me better. So whether that's kind of going, you know, take a break from work, go out for a walk, maybe don't drink that bottle of wine. <laughs> Instead, like, I just try and do my best. But as I said, I'm a perfectly normal human being too. And I'm certainly not perfect in it, but I'm really enjoying exploring my relationship with grief and that the fact that I think I've gone from seeing it as the total enemy and trying to fight it instead it's almost like I'm going like come on in (laughs) you're going to be with me for for life I don't think grief's going anywhere for me anytime soon and I'm now okay with that and so I'm a bit like if I can treat it more so like a friend then I seem to be faring better for it. And it's given me a lot more energy and space to, to sit in emotions, to feel what I'm feeling and, um, and be okay with that. That is just such sage, incredible advice. Everything you said then for anyone that's going through any kind of tough time is that just feeling it and getting through it and befriending it and welcoming it as part of you, you know, as part mm-hmm. of your being, it's not something separate. It's something part of you. That is just, yeah, I had goosebumps listening to you say that. Thank you for that. Now, Joe, you've just released a book, a guided journal, appropriately called Grief. Can you tell us a little bit about it? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So look, Grief, a guided journal is something that's kind of, I guess, come out of my grief and I'm exceptionally proud of it. And so essentially this concept came about, um, you know, I actually went away not long after Craig had died for a weekend down the coast just to get away. And I was doing a little bit of writing at that time. And, um, you know, I kept thinking, I think there was something in me sort of going, there needs to be a space where people can just write about their grief. And I sort of looked at it as a bit of a guide, but I've changed my thinking on that. I didn't, I don't think anyone needs a how to do grief guide. We've just discussed that. There's actually no way to do grief in a proper or correct way. And we're all so different, but what we can do is explore those emotions and explore those um, feelings in a safe space. So I kind of came to this concept of, you know, having some journal that was a safe space for people to write about their experiences. So it was really important to me that it wasn't a memorial book. Like it's not something for me just to write like a love ode to Craig. Um, And it might sound a bit harsh, but I'm a little bit like, you know what, I've got these beautiful memories and I can write those down and and do that. But um, to me, I was like, he's he's gone and now I'm left here in this new world trying to navigate and find my way. And it's important for people that are grieving to have space just to, to explore their grief. So, you know, I essentially put together this journal with guided writing prompts so that people can, I guess, know a little bit more around what to expect from that grieving process. So it takes you through different steps like, you know, you know, what does anger make you feel? Can you think of a time that grief has made you feel angry? Um, think about loneliness or regret. Write a letter to, a per, you know, the person that's died about any regrets that you might have. At the same time, you know, there's really important parts of it too, like thinking about what are the little things that make you feel good and day-to-day life, you know, how do you connect to the person that's died, kindness to yourself, all kinds of things. But, you know, essentially too, I was, I, I know I was gifted a lot of blank notebooks after Craig had died and you're so overwhelmed when you're grieving that whilst you want to write or you might want to write, it's, oh, it's so hard to come up with the words and I wish I had written more, but I just didn't know where to start. And I think something like this just helps people explore that. And it, you know, it, it's not something to be smashed out over one weekend. Mm. It's something that can sit on people's shelves and they can t- attend to it when they need. And um, I've also noticed sort of after releasing it, how much people have been purchasing it for people they know that are grieving is a beautiful gift and keepsake for them to just kind of let them know that they care and that, you know, this can really help in a way, I think when it comes to, you know, things like self-exploration and how you're feeling and positive well-being and yeah, yeah. So I'm exceptionally proud. I think I'd sort of said to you, it's a bit bittersweet because, you know, you're like, oh, hooray, I've got this book out there. But, you know, the way it's come to be has been really hard and really tragic, but 
you know, you've got to see the silver linings in it also. Absolutely. How would this journal, how would this book have helped you if someone had given you this exact thing a couple of years ago? I think how it really would have helped me is I would have written out a lot of the thoughts and feelings that I'd perhaps never considered. So I didn't know what was happening to me after Craig had died. Never grieved before. I had never lost someone that was close to me. So I wouldn't have really thought that anger or loneliness like would have come into it as hard as it did. So I wish I'd had something that had guided me, but I also think it's a really important exercise for reflection. So I wish I'd written more in that year one so that I could look back now and go, God, I've come so far or equally to be like, um, or to think those emotions are still really real and really raw for me and, and to not discount that and to think that it's done. And also I think sometimes look back and write and go, wow, I had really lost my mind at that point. (laughs) You know, I think like I'll be completing the journal this year myself and it's something that I intend to do on a yearly basis because I love watching how my relationship with grief changes and evolves too. And, you know, as I said, like I'm, as much as I've had three years of experience, I'm still learning so much about it as well. Yeah. And um, it's, it's an ongoing journey. You said in it as well in the book that it's not just for people who have lost someone, it's for any kind of death of anything major in your life as well. Does it feel good to know that it can be helping so many people for, with so many differing life situations and knowing that you're really making an impact in helping them process that grief? Yeah, look, absolutely. And I, do you know what? It's so funny because I think when I set out writing it, I don't know, maybe I just thought it was a bit of a personal sort of passion project. And since I've released it, God, like my heart feels so full. Like, and I've probably not had that feeling for a while, but I don't know. I, I didn't realize like how beautiful and nice it is to help others. And, um, you know, I, I just, I think for me, the passionate side of it is that I know how much pain that I've been through and how much suffering and how much that has hurt that God, I just kind of feel like if I could even take away 0.5% of that pain that I would do it. And I think that's become that really big purpose behind it is in if I could just help with a little bit, I absolutely will. And, um, yeah, it feels really, really nice. Yeah, absolutely. You talk about the importance of articulating your feel good five, um, a reference to look back on when times are tough. What's yours? Okay. So mine, uh, look, there's a few different things. So I, when it comes to my feel good five walking for me Mm -hmm. now, if you live in Geelong, you probably see me stalking my way around the block as much as possible, but I have always loved walking, hiking. I would prefer, but I don't often get the time to do so. So I try and start most of my day when I'm able to with a walk just to clear my head. And I just, I always feel so much better, after it or to listen to podcasts or just take some time out for me. Um, I love a really good cup of tea, like green tea and like using the fancy leaves rather than just the tea bag from. No, (laughs) no, never. Yes. Always invest in good quality tea. Yeah. I am. So it's quite funny. So Craig and I always like for celebrations, birthday or anniversaries and things, big fans of seafood. So to make me feel good. And I, and I do this more now than I ever have. Like I just go and get myself a dozen oysters and I think treat yourself. Who cares? Like it, it doesn't matter if it's just a little pick me up. It's all, yeah, all good. I love to read really good books. Um, and then a big one for me is travel. Um, I love to get away. It's been interesting traveling on my own since Craig died. So Hyde and I have done a few trips to Cambodia. I've been to Sri Lanka. I've, you know, gone into state and things like that too. And God, like travel for me feels so good. Like I, I just get into this really great space and it really re-energizes me for, you know, what's to come or what's ahead um, because, you know, grief can be really grueling at times. Um, but, yeah, that's absolutely um I'm t- probably at the top of my feel good five if I could always afford it. Um, but also if travel restrictions would lift so I can actually go. So for the time being, I always say this, I'm like, if, if I can't go on the 
travel, then I just like reading TripAdvisor and reading the reviews of <laughs> hotels. <laughs> probably places I'll never go to at all, which is, um, yeah, a bizarre sort of thing that I get up to. <laughs> yeah. And when you reflect on all of this and I know that, you know, sometimes life can just keep moving and just keep bustling along and we don't really get a really good chance just to stop and reflect. Are you proud of how far you've come? Um, I, yeah, look, I am actually, I think I've had a really emotional few weeks, um, just on releasing this journal because it it has made me actually stop and reflect on quite a few things. So I think there's been that reflection of what happened to me. So it can be interesting after a few years that, you know, um, not that people forget, it's not often a huge side of me that I share as to what actually had happened because it's, you know, quite, um, yeah, graphic and things like that too. Mm. But um, so it's been an interesting reflection on kind of going, yeah, I've come a long way in that. I think I've loved reflecting on my um, views on grief and I feel really proud about how I've gone from, you know, trying to battle it to embracing it. And yeah, I, I feel really, yeah, I just, I feel really proud that I've just made it. Like I'm, I'm just kind of still here, still living and still passionate about life because I think, you know, at times I thought I could be so jaded by this experience, but at the core of me, there is this huge love of life and, um, you know, perhaps I've taken a little bit of that on from what Craig had taught me and, I'm so incredibly grateful to be alive that I don't want to miss out on anything. So I guess I just try and give it my all where I can and, you know, but also give my break myself a break a little bit too. But yeah, I, I am very proud. Oh, that's beautiful. And how do you keep the memory alive of Craig for yourself and your daughter, Heidi? Yeah. So we, we obviously talk about Craig, um, we talk about him a lot and I think so he's just in our day-to-day conversation which is really nice because I think and it's important to do that because I think sometimes external people are scared to bring him up around you in case they upset you and it never if I can give one tip it never upsets a person that's grieving when they're reminded of someone that they love so much you know you just love sharing you know little anecdotes about them and you know even talking to you today about like how did you meet like it just makes me smile and kind of go yes I've got a chance to talk about him um so Hides and I talk about him a lot we have a little wooden daddy box that we we put things into whether that's cards or letters and um yeah I think for me probably personally a little bit of letter writing every now and then that I'll I'll put into the box a lot of listening to sometimes sometimes I like to put on like a really sad and tragic playlist and and think about him and I don't know have a good cry and um yeah I just I think we've just incorporated him into little parts of our life I don't know it's a really weird one but Heidi I don't know why, but after Craig had died, she spots out purple cars for some reason. And I, I don't know why I connect it to Craig, but we'll be in the car. Every time she sees a purple car, she <laughs> purple car. And it instantly reminds me of Craig and almost like, is that a little sign that he's giving us that he is here? But yeah, we, I don't know, we talk, we joke, we make fun of him and say, you know, he was funny and on, you know, special days, whether it's, you know, the anniversary of his death or his birthday, like we, we eat his favourite foods and um, Heidi's always at me the packet of twisties because he loved twisties. So an excuse to kind of do little things like that too. Yeah. Do you sense, as you just said about the purple car, do you ever or initially sense him around or have this kind of, I don't know, just is there any weird synchronicities that kind of just seem too coincidental? It's... It's funny because I, I go through stages of that spiritual sort of side of things and I've never been an overly spiritual kind of person. But I don't know, particularly recently, I feel like he's trying to say to me, like I'm I'm here and almost a bit of a cheeky, like give me some recognition for this, Joe. like get on a podcast and talk, <laughs> talk about me. I need some attention from this. And that could be that I've driven past a couple of different places that have reminded me of times 
really early in my grief or, you know, aspects of our relationship and things too. But all I can definitely say is from the moment he died, and I, and I, and I don't know, this could be very individual for different people, like my heart still feels good and it has always, you know, I was saying my heart feels so full. I don't know, there's just something in me that feels like Craig's still with me whether that's through signs or whatever it is, but I just, I just actually can kind of feel it within me that I don't feel empty. And I think a huge part of that was the love that he gave to both Heidi and I before he died that, that there actually isn't too many regrets at all, which is yeah. Nice, nice place to be in. And how do you feel about the label widow? And has your relationship changed with that word over the years? Is it, was there times that you just hated it or yeah, I'm interested yeah. to hear that. It's, um, I mean, what a word, like seriously. And I, and I think, you know, I could not believe it probably that 24, 48 hours after Craig had died, I was like, oh, my God, like I'm a widow. Can you, like, I cannot actually believe this because I was just thinking of the things I see in movies that I should probably be 80 years of age wearing all black and that essentially I should be just rocking back and forth in the corner and, and have lots of cats. <laughs> cats don't say a word and do not enjoy life absolutely do not enjoy any aspect of life and so I I find it I think I've become more comfortable with the term I find it hard to tell other people because of I don't think it's so so much my gripe with it I just know that it really shocks other people and it can make them feel really not uncomfortable, but it sort of puts them on edge. Like I accidentally broke the news to the pharmacist the other day and I thought she knew what I was talking about, clearly didn't. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a widow. (laughs) And I could just see her face kind of dropping and like she didn't know what to say and I'm like, oh, it's it's fine, it's fine, you know, it is what it is. But it's it's hard because it is a title that doesn't come with many great connotations Mm around it but in saying that I've kind of I think decided that I'm just going to own it and um that I don't have to stick to those stereotypes so you know I'm not dressed head to toe in black like I I like the fair color it was you know it was really important to me even at Craig's funeral like I didn't wear black I wore like a beautiful blue color dress that I knew that he would love and um you know I've seen how fragile life is that life's too short for me to go and sit in the corner crying the entire time that I have to get out there and kind of embrace it. And I've got so much life ahead of me. And at the end of the day, it is a title, but in a way, I guess being a widow has taught me so much. So I guess there's a tiny little bit of gratefulness for it too, because I've um, certainly feel like in some aspects, it's kind of been the best, worst thing that's ever happened to me because yeah I think it's made me grow in areas that I probably could never have imagined I'm really interested in that how what are the main lessons you've taken out of it what are the main yeah learnings out of this experience I think the learnings for me have certainly been around living a life that just feels good so I think goes back to that feel good vibe and, and that life doesn't have to be overly complicated the simpler it is the better. And so I think I've learned really good lessons in simplifying my life and understanding that, you know, when it comes to what I probably used to perceive as success being, you know, you're doing really great with your career that I've realized like my success actually lays in my relationship with myself, my relationship with my family and my friends. And I think if I can be successful in that, then I'm a far happier person for it. So I I tend to kind of go, the lessons for me have been simplifying life, not trying to keep up with the Joneses and yeah, trying to feel good, but I guess to embracing those tough emotions and um, not always having to put a positive spin on everything. And um, that sort of toxic positivity Mm. doesn't have to be the way to go because you're doing yourself only like a disservice if you buy into that too much, because I think you can find the positivity in things, certainly, but there's a bit of a process in getting to that. And I think if you you feel what you're feeling, then that's certainly the way to go mentally, emotionally, and physically. Mm. 
And what would you tell anyone listening that might be going through something very similar to what you did and have are currently going through, or perhaps is just going through any kind of hard time? What would your advice be? There's a few things. And I think um, certainly someone that is in the very deep, dark hole of having a hard time. I think a lot of people are in that space at the moment. And, you know, I I think another thing that we've, um, that I sometimes find hard with social media is people getting out there and being like, you know, if you're feeling down, show gratitude, do yoga, meditate for an hour. Yeah. (laughs) I think, I think that that's important in time, but when you're facing a really hard time, the kind of time where you can't get out of bed, where you're struggling to do work, your brain's all over the place, then my advice is you have to just take it back to basics. And I've explored that a little bit in my journal. And that essentially to me means that you're nourished. So make sure that you're, you're eating, that you're hydrated, make sure that you drink water, try and steer away from the wine a little Mm -hmm. bit, Um, that you're rested. So don't, um, attempt to get up and go for a 10 kilometer walk. Like sometimes your body just needs rest and perhaps it needs to stay in better on the couch for the day. And the other one would be making sure that you've connected to other people or connecting in with yourself or to professional help. So I sort of, anyone that's going through an incredibly tough time needs to just go back to those basic needs and attend to those. Because if you can do that, then you'll find that maybe in a day, day or two, maybe a week, um, and, you know, don't put too much pressure on it. Otherwise, you'll you'll get that energy to then be able to go, right, well, maybe it would be good for me to go for a walk. Maybe it would be good for me to do um, a yoga session or meditate for an hour or whatever it is. But just, yeah, being really gentle and kind on yourself and, and not expecting that you're always going to dominate the world. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's really important. And I think it's important to to connect with others and and tell others when you're not feeling good, but I think also being not afraid to say to them and just listen, like Mm. just listen to me. Don't try and make this feel better because um, certainly I know, you know, for me when I get in those really bad spaces, the worst thing that can anyone can do is try and um, I guess give you positive platitudes to try and make you feel better. And I'm sometimes mindful of that. Sometimes like if I'm upset, I know more recently this year, I'd said to my sister, I'm so upset, you know, need to come around and be with me. And I said, but do not dare try and make me feel better about this because I just had to sit in it. So sit in it, connect with people, but, you know, I guess surround yourself with the right kind of people that will listen and nurture you through that. And if, if, if you don't have that in friends and family, then I would certainly advise professional help. Yeah, absolutely. And I know whenever someone's had a huge life event, it can be hard then to plan ahead for the future or see what, imagine what the future look, looks like. But if you had a crystal ball, what do you imagine the next few years have in store for you and Heidi? Oh God, it's really interesting you say that because I, I think, especially when you've had a big, massive, tragic event, it is really hard to plan because you know how, you know, easily things can be ripped away. But I think for Hides and I, certainly, I just want the next few years to be filled with, you know, her being at school. We do a little bit of travel. We, you know, keep building on our relationship with each other and evolving in that. And, um, I'm a, as I said, I'm a pretty simple girl now. So for me, if if it's just being with my family and friends and with Heidi and I guess I'm probably exploring this new side too of helping others with their grief, then that's kind of, oh, and the holiday. Oh, did I mention the holiday? <laughs> then um, that's, that's kind of enough for me. And Joe, I finish all my interviews in the same way. And that is what advice would Joe now tell the Joe in her darkest moments, the Joe who I'm sure at many times thought she couldn't keep going on? Yeah, I think um, I would just always say to myself, like, hang in there. You you will learn so much from this, even though it is so hard, but you will come out the other side. Oh, that's beautiful. It's made me a bit teary. 
<laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah, it's got me. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and your beautiful book grief. It's just, you sent me very kindly, sent me a copy and I devoured it and it's just so beautiful and you've done such an incredible job and you're going to be helping so many people, which just must be the most incredible feeling, knowing that you could turn something into an opportunity to help others. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Elizabeth. I'm so appreciative. And yeah, look, it's, as I said, it certainly makes my heart feel full. And um, yeah, I'm just, yeah, very grateful to be able to have that opportunity to help others in some way. Yeah. Thank you so much, lovely. Enjoy homeschooling. (laughs) I will. (laughs) Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lemonade. I'll pop all the links to follow Jo and grab a copy of her guided journal, Grief, in the show notes. If you're enjoying listening to Lemonade, as I ask every week, I'd be so appreciative if you could hit five stars, leave a review, and perhaps tell your friends as well. That means the word about this podcast will get out and hopefully reach the kind of people who perhaps really need to hear this kind of content right now. Thank you so much once again. And I'll chat with you next week. Cheers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.